Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Unconscionable. As families mourn the children lost in Uvalde, more Americans die in mass shootings. How much more carnage are we willing to accept? With just days to come to an agreement, are senators any closer to a deal? I'll speak exclusively with the lead Democratic negotiator, Senator Chris Murphy, next. And economic hurricane. As CEOs warn Americans that more hurt is coming, the Biden administration admits they got it wrong. I think I was wrong then about the path that inflation would take. So what's their plan to fix it? Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo joins me to discuss in moments. Plus, primetime event. The January 6th committee will finally pull back the curtain, but with Americans' attention focused elsewhere, can they make their case? The biggest challenge we have is how do we compete with a story of fantasy? I'll speak with former Republican congressman and senior advisor to the January 6th committee, Denver Riggleman, ahead. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the State of Our Union is angry at the lack of leadership. Senate negotiators say this will be the critical week to see if they can reach a deal to do anything to respond to the mass shootings in Uvalde, Texas, and Buffalo, New York, that took the lives of 31 Americans. The talks are intensifying as President Biden delivered a rare primetime address Thursday, saying enough is enough, and outlining a series of measures to try to stem the violence, including a ban on some kinds of semi-automatic weapons. But even with good intentions from some on both sides, the passage of anything, the chances still seem remote. And as lawmakers deliberate, Americans are continue to be killed daily in this uniquely American epidemic. Overnight, at least three people were killed and 11 wounded after a mass shooting on South Street. In Philadelphia, one of the city's most popular areas for restaurants and bars, and on a personal basis, that's an area less than a mile from where I grew up. That's the street where I would go to get a slice or watch a movie. Another community traumatized by gun violence. One of six mass shootings this weekend, leaving a total of six dead and more than a dozen injured, according to the nonprofit Gun Violence Archive. I'll be honest, it can be frustrating to report on and follow negotiations that always seem to go nowhere as more and more Americans continue to be killed. But the most meaningful change does need to come from Washington. So let's begin with one of the two men at the center of the Senate negotiations on gun safety, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. Senator Murphy, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. I appreciate it. So Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he wants a deal this week. And let's be honest, the, the, the issue here is what are Republican senators and West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin, what are those 51 individuals, what are they willing to agree to? How close are you? What are the sticking points? So I've never been part of negotiations as serious as these. There are more Republicans at the table talking about changing our gun laws and investing in mental health than at any time since Sandy Hook. Now, I've also been part of many failed negotiations in the past, so I'm sober-minded about our chances. Um, We are talking about a meaningful change in our gun laws, a major investment in mental health, perhaps some money for school security that would make a difference. On the table is 
red flag laws, changes to our background check system to improve the existing system, a handful of uh, other items that will make a difference. Can we get there by the end of next week, as Senator Schumer has requested? I I don't know, but um, as late as last night, we were engaged in conversations about trying to put a package together because I think Republicans realize how scared parents and kids are across this country. I think they realize that the answer this kind cannot be nothing, Um, that it's frankly a test of democracy. It's a test of the federal government as to whether we can deliver at a moment of just fierce anxiety amongst the American public. So Mm -hmm. we're closer than ever before. Uh, Let's see if we land it. So more than 250 Texas conservative gun enthusiasts and donors have a full page ad uh, in today's Dallas Morning News endorsing your negotiations with their home senator, Senator John Cornyn, and calling for red flag laws, which you mentioned, expanding background checks, which you mentioned, raising the age to buy a gun, a semi-automatic, I assume, to 21. It's already 21 for a handgun. Right. You didn't mention that. Just a few days ago, I have to say, Senator Cornyn tweeted that Second Amendment restrictions are, quote, not going to happen, he said. So what does that mean, not going to happen? Does that mean none of the things you're negotiating are going to happen? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I guess I also agree that we're not going to do anything that compromises people's Second Amendment rights. We're not going to do anything that compromises the ability of a law-abiding American to be able to buy a weapon. What we're talking about is trying to make sure that dangerous or potentially dangerous individuals don't have their hands on weapons. Senator Cornyn has also talked about his interest in taking a look at how we access juvenile records for these young men who tend to be 18 to 21 committing these mass murders to make sure that they can't get their hands on a weapon if they have had problems with the law in the past. Uh, So I think there's agreement amongst the negotiators that we're going to take some common sense steps that do not compromise Second Amendment rights. We are likely going to pair it with some significant mental health spending, which will make a difference as well. And I think everything Senator Cornyn has said is consistent with the negotiations we're having. Listen, we're not going to do everything I want. We are not going to put a piece of legislation on the table that's going to ban assault weapons, or uh, we're not going to pass comprehensive background checks. But right now, people in this country want us to make progress. They just don't want the status quo to continue for another 30 years. Is raising the age limit, as these Texas conservatives say they want to happen, from 18 to 21? Because disproportionately, crimes committed with semi-automatic rifles, I've seen statistics that show, are disproportionately committed by people, men, between 18 and 21. Is that on the table? I mean, I think right now we're trying to figure out what can get 60 to 70 votes in the Senate. It is true that the reason why 18 to 21-year-olds are banned from buying pistols is that at the time, that was seen as the most dangerous weapon that you could buy. Today, I think we're realizing AR-15s are, in fact, the most dangerous weapon that an 18 to 21-year-old can buy. Although right, just, now, I, I, I right now, we need to find what has 60 votes. Yeah. I mean, most of the – when you look at the gun statistics, still – most of the gun deaths are suicides, right. and most of the homicides are still committed with handguns, not AR-15-style weapons, correct? Well, and that's why the red flag law is probably the most important here. And it's not just about getting more states to pass red flag laws. It's actually about helping states implement red flag laws. So what we're talking about is you know, not just providing um, incentives for states to pass new laws, but helping fund existing red flag laws so that more individuals who are contemplating suicides can... Um, can have their weapons temporarily taken from them to save their lives. So we had a great report done by Leila Santiago, our correspondent in Florida, who did 
who looked at what happened in Florida after they passed red flag laws after the Parkland shooting in 2018. And she had, I think it was the Pasco County Sheriff talking about how effective they worked. And it had me thinking, why doesn't, why don't you just take all the laws that the Florida governor and the Florida, uh, and the, 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 who was a Republican, and the Republican-led legislature in Florida, all those laws that they passed after Parkland. And they did a lot. There was a waiting period. They raised the, the age from 18 to 21, red flag laws, uh, hardening schools so that they, they were safer, et cetera, et cetera. Why not just take that, make that the template? That Republican governor who signed it is now the Republican right. senator who's leading the charge for Republican Senate elections, right. Rick Scott. Why not just take that and say, this is a great law that Republicans passed in Florida. Let's make it national. So I think, as I mentioned before, we are broadly trying to figure out what has 60 votes. But I think the template from Florida is the right one, which is do some significant mental health investment, some school safety money, and some modest but impactful changes in gun laws. Um, That's the kind of package we're putting together right now. That's the kind of package I think can pass the Senate. Although I would say that uh, Florida did raise the age and you can purchase a semi-automatic rifle from 18 to 21. It doesn't sound like that's going to be in the package you're talking about. I mean, again, right now we're trying to discover what can get to 60 votes. But I will say this. As Senator Cornyn has said, there is interest in taking a look at that age range, 18 to 21, and doing what is necessary to make sure that we aren't giving a weapon to anybody that has during their um, younger years a mental health history, a juvenile record. Uh, Often um, those juvenile records aren't accessible when they walk into the gun store buying as an adult. So we're having a conversation about that specific population, 18 to 21, and how to make sure that only the right people, law-abiding citizens, are getting their hands on weapons. In 2016, after the Pulse shooting uh, in Florida, the Senate voted on four gun bills. The two Republican proposals would have made minor improvements to the background check system and would have allowed the government to temporarily block someone on the terrorist watch list from buying a gun. You voted against both because you thought they did not go far enough. In retrospect, do you wish you'd voted yes? No, because we had much better legislation on the floor at the time, so it was in many ways a choice between the two. Um, We have since then passed some of those improvements to the background check system. That's really the only gun legislation that's passed in the last 10 years, and uh, I'm glad that this time around uh, we have far more Republicans that are willing to work together. We don't need to have competing proposals on the Senate floor next week or the week after. We have to have one proposal that can get 60, 70 votes from both parties. And so that's why right now we aren't exchanging offers between both sides. We are writing a piece of legislation together collaboratively so that we can avoid what happened back in 2016. Do, does it have to happen this week? Is this do or die week? And would President Biden getting involved in negotiations help? Um, I think the Senate needs to do this ourselves. Um, I've talked to the White House every single day um, since these negotiations began, but right now the Senate needs to handle these negotiations. Um, I think this week we need to have um, concepts to present to our colleagues. I don't know that we're going to vote this coming week, but we need to make decisions on whether or not we have a sustainable package in the next five days. I know you're prepared to fail. You've been through this for I don't even know how long, you know, years and years, more than decades, more than decade. Um, is it going to work? Are you going to get there? Um, I'm more confident than ever that we're going to get there. But I'm also um, more anxious about failure this time around. Um, when I was in Connecticut last week, I've never seen the look on parents' faces that I did. Um, there's just a deep, deep fear for our children right now, and also a fear that government is so fundamentally broken 
that it can't put politics aside to guarantee the one thing that matters most to adults in this country, the physical safety of their children. And so I think the possibility of success is better than ever before, but I think the consequences of failure for our entire democracy are more significant than ever. All right, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut, thanks so much Thank for being you. with us. Appreciate it. After a recent mass shooting, a first-term Republican congressman spoke out in favor of new gun safety laws. We'll tell you what happened to him ahead. Plus, gas has reached nearly $10 a gallon in one California town. How did the Biden administration get it so wrong on inflation? Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. Gas prices are now at nearly $10 a gallon in Mendocino, California. That's the most expensive gas in the United States as the Biden administration struggles to get inflation under control. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen just admitted she got it wrong when she said inflation would be manageable. So what is the administration doing to combat inflation? And joining me now is the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo. Secretary Raimondo, thanks for joining us. So you heard Secretary Yellen this week said she got it wrong about inflation. In July, you told Bloomberg that inflation would be temporary about a year ago. As recently as six months ago, you were calling inflation a, quote, short-term problem, not a long-term problem. So you got it wrong, too. Yeah, good morning. Good to be with you. Um, So clearly, we are and Americans are struggling with inflation. Uh, But I don't think anyone predicted Putin's war uh, in Ukraine or various other things that have happened that have been unexpected. I still think, uh, you know, we will get inflation under control. We just have to stick with it and see it through. You know, I think it's worth noting that gas prices are up $1.40 a gallon since Putin moved troops troops into uh, Ukraine. So, The president and our team is doing everything we possibly can to get inflation under control. The reality is um, the cause of this inflation is the supply chain problems that were caused by COVID we're still struggling with. Putin's war is driving the price of food and gas up. And that's, you know, we can't deny that. We know Americans are struggling. And demand changes. You know, demand continues to be strong post-COVID in ways that were different than pre-COVID. So we are committed to it. And most important, the Fed. I mean, obviously, the the Fed monetary policy has much bigger tools than any administration to get inflation under control. Mm -hmm. And you heard Larry Summers, a top economist, just yesterday saying you're starting to see, you know, you're starting to see inflation come down. Well, All due respect, Madam Secretary, Larry Summers a year ago, more than a year ago, was saying that the Biden administration was putting too much money into the economy, flooding too much money into the economy, and he was concerned about inflation. And Biden administration officials said that Larry Summers was wrong, and it turned out Larry Summers was right. Uh, I don't really agree with that characterization. Look, the reality is, I was just in Europe a couple of weeks ago. Gas there in France is $10 a gallon, and, right? And they didn't have uh, an American rescue plan like we did. I shudder to think, Jake, what we'd be living through right now if we didn't have the American rescue plan. Remember, that was the money for vaccinations, which actually allowed us to get everybody back to work. That was the money for emergency rental relief. Um, I I was the governor of Rhode Island before this job. When I took over as governor, 
we were deep into the quote-unquote recovery from the stimulus last time, which was anemic. And when I took over, unemployment in my state was 7 or 8%. So I can't, you know, when the president, when President Biden took over, we had 18 million people collecting unemployment insurance. That's down more than 90% right now. Yeah. We have a strong economy now. People are working. Inflation's a problem. I will grant you that. And we will get it under control because we're going to stick with it until we do. Well, when do you think you're going to be able to get it under control? Because there are some economists, for example, as well as voices inside the Biden administration, who say one thing you could do is to lift Trump-era tariffs on China, another country. Now, you previously have said that those tariffs have been effective, but do you still believe that these tariffs should remain in place, even if it means those companies passing the cost on to American consumers? Wouldn't that be one small fix that the Biden administration could, could make? It's a great question, Jake, and it, it, we are looking at it. In fact, the president has asked us on his team to analyze that, and so we're in the process of doing that for him, and he will have to make that decision. Um, I will say it depends on what we're talking about, on what kinds of products. So, for example, steel and aluminum, we've decided to keep some of those tariffs because we need to protect American workers and we need to protect our, our steel industry. That's a matter of national security. There are other products uh, you know, household goods, bicycles, et cetera. Uh, and, and it may make sense. And I know the president is looking at that. Here's what I do know. President Biden gets up every day and goes to bed every night thinking about what can we do to get a lid on inflation. And anyone who brings him a good idea that he thinks will help American families, he's open to doing it. The Abbott plant at the center of the baby formula shortage has officially restarted operations. President Biden this week said he didn't learn about the severity of the infant formula shortage until April, but problems first emerged back at the Abbott plant back in October 2021. An industry executive said they knew how bad this could get when the plant closed in February. You're the Secretary of Commerce. When did you first learn of this problem? Uh, I first learned about it, you know, uh, a couple of months ago. So this is uh, this is, so a, this is a difficult issue, but uh, yes, probably April. I'm not involved in the administration's response here, I should say, but I think they're doing a very good job. As soon as they learned that this could be a severe shortage, they got on top of it. But fundamentally, Jake, this is about safety. Again, I'm I'm a mom. I've you know had little babies. I, my heart goes out to moms and dads trying to get formula who can't have it. But at the end of the day, the worst outcome would be if the FDA hadn't shut it down and and kids got sick. So, as you said, plant opened up again yesterday. President's taking extraordinary measures to have baby formula flown in, and uh, they will stick with this and, until um, you know until it's back to normal. We're talking about two critical issues here that directly affect the American people where they live, where the Biden administration looks like it was caught flat-footed. Inflation and baby formula, not to mention the record gas prices, which were hurt by the war in Ukraine, no doubt, but that's not the only reason why they're so high. Why does it seem the Biden administration is consistently playing cleanup on these problems that are playing out exactly as many experts forecast they would, instead of heading them off before they become a crisis? 
So, again, I mean, that's one way to look at it, but I want to go back to the basic facts, right? I was the governor of Rhode Island during COVID. It's a state of a million people, and we had over 100,000 people collecting unemployment. We had people getting kicked out of their homes because they couldn't afford the rent. Because of the president's leadership, we are—America is back to work. Wages are increasing. The labor market is strong. People have not been thrown out of their homes. We are not seeing the anemic and very painful economic recovery that we experienced in 2009, 10, 11, 12, and 13 after the last, you know, economic uh, slowdown. Yes, inflation's a problem. In no way do I want to minimize that. The Fed is independent, they are taking action, and you're already starting to see that. But fundamentally, what we have here is a robust economic recovery, and I think that's in large part due to the president's leadership. So you've called the ongoing semiconductor chip shortage a, quote, huge national security issue. I know you've been focused on it a lot. The CEO of Intel says he thinks that shortage could continue at least until 2024. Do you agree with that, And, and what can be done to fix this supply chain crisis? Yeah, unfortunately, I do agree with that. Again, it's a story of demand, right? The whole economy went digital. Everything digital requires chips, and so demand is through the roof. The only thing that can be done, what we're doing immediately is working with companies to help them increase their production, increase transparency between the suppliers and the consumers, but those are all short-term fixes. There is one solution It is not a hard solution. Congress needs to act and pass the CHIPS bill. I don't know why they're delaying. It's a national security issue. There are hundreds of semiconductor chips in Mm -hmm. every Javelin launching system, in every piece of military equipment. It's bipartisan. You know, Mitch McConnell voted for it in the Senate. It's bipartisan. Let's get this done and deliver for the American people. By the way, create a lot of jobs in the process. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jake. The January 6th hearing starting this week will review new information about what happened that day, we're told. The Republican who helped investigate is here with, to share something that shocked him. That's next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. After more than a year, the January 6th Select House Committee will begin revealing their findings to the public with a series of hearings. It begins this Thursday in prime time. So how much does the committee know that we do not currently? Joining me now, a former Republican congressman who advised the January 6th committee for eight months on the inside, former congressman, Republican congressman, Denver Riggleman. Uh, congressman, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate Great to it. to be here. So I understand there's a lot that you can't say because they're saving it for the committee, but there is some stuff you can tell us. For instance... What did Donald Trump know about the insurrection, and when did he know it? I think with uh, some of the data that we've seen, that's what the committee is going to be able to reveal, right? And I know that uh, a lot of individuals are worried about the, just the six hearings, but they're going to be very concise. I think they're actually going to be exciting when they compress that. But I believe when they do the bottom line up front, it's sort of the military saying, when they do it at the front. Bluff, yeah. Yeah, the bluff, right? When they lay that out up front, I think people are going to be absolutely surprised uh, how much was known with multiple groups. And I think that's what's going to be exciting to see the committee. There's some very, talented, very talented investigators behind the doors. And uh, even with our teams and things like that and what they found. But again, the investigators going through the thousands of interviews that they have and all the data and the videos, I, think, uh, I do think they're going to be very successful in those six, I think, in those six hearings. And will there be anything resembling a smoking gun, something that proves that 
Donald Trump or somebody around him knew that what happened January 6th was not a spontaneous uh, outcry by his supporters, but was a planned uh, attempt to get them to stop counting the electoral votes. I think when you look at the totality of the evidence, and some of these are my personal opinions, right? When you look at the totality of the evidence, it's pretty apparent that at some points President Trump knew what was going on, obviously, right? I mean, if you're having meetings within the White House, uh, if you're having individuals that you're paying out there, you know, doing lawsuits, you know, the 64, 65 lawsuits, if you're pushing this sort of lie, even on Twitter and social media, which is very important, which I think the committee is going to concentrate on, if you look at what's happening in the message that's being pushed by President Trump himself on social media and other individuals, you start to see this pipeline of information that's very damaging and is pushing things like Stop the Steal. So again, I think the committee is going to be able to wrap that up. And, and what I hope the American people do, and this is, listen, I had to give command briefings when I was an intelligence officer, and you're trying to get the general's attention. Uh, but also the American people have to look at this from the beginning, take their notes, and understand that the committee has to build the case in a very solid, facts-based way. There's not going to be a lot of partisan whining or screaming. The investigators behind the door are nonpartisan individuals. They're going to present this case in a very cogent way, but the American people needs to, they need to take notes. So it doesn't sound like you're saying there's a smoking gun other than the entire case will be a smoking gun. But no, no, no specific, like, we're coming to Washington on this day to overturn the election. Donald Trump signs off. Like, well, that... That probably is going to be very difficult to even find based on the limited authorities of Congress as far as getting data and things like that. However, um, there's multiple groups involved. And I think that's what's exciting about the hearings is they're going to be able to put the the multiple groups together. Remember, there's different investigative teams that were looking at different parts of this the whole time. Then they've had to merge that. And that has been, I think, the biggest challenge for the committee is they didn't. I don't know if even I, and I've been in data before, I've never seen this much data. Right. It's it's uh, it's absolutely incredible. And the fact is, that without the talent behind the door for the committee, I don't know if they could have parsed it. So do you think January 6th was an attempted coup? Your opinion. Was this an attempted coup? Personal opinion? Yeah. Yes. It was an attempt. Yes. Coup. Um, and, uh, you know, if you just go by the definition of coup in the dictionary, if you look at the uh, uh, groups that were involved, I just have a unique perspective uh, because we can look at, at certain things. By President Trump, just to be clear. Here. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, attempted coup, I think. Uh, when you look at the people around him and the fact that there's awareness or they're talking about things that are, let's, let's be honest, they're blatantly untrue. They're propaganda. Um, and I've just had the good fortune, it's actually the awful fortune, of uh, being involved with conspiracy theories. As you know, when right. we talked about this back in uh, 2019, 2020, I did this well before the committee was doing it. So I've been looking at this data for a long time. So it gives me probably a unique perspective that was even pre-committee on what we were seeing with disinformation. And I think that's a real threat you know, to the American, I think it's a real threat to America, but I also believe it's a real challenge to try, those, to try to control those multiple media channels that are sort of mainlining this insanity into people's heads. Your former Republican colleague, uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who is the vice chair uh, of this committee, uh, she said this about the Republican Party airing this weekend. Take a listen. We have too many people now in the Republican Party who are not taking their responsibility seriously and who have pledged their allegiance and loyalty to Donald Trump. It is contrary to everything conservatives believe to embrace a personality cult. And yet, that is what so many in my party are doing today. A personality cult. Do you agree with that characterization? I do. do. Too many Republicans, it's a personality cult, not a party. It is. And, uh, you know, I, I got to see that firsthand, as you know, um, with our team and the text messages. I got to see that firsthand. Can I just ask you, I'm sorry to interrupt, sure. but we're running out of time, and I want to ask you, you were a Republican congressman. Mm-hmm. Do you still consider yourself a Republican? 
I think the party left me some time ago. I don't. And um, I think that's something that I've, you know, I've had to grapple with even behind the scenes. What I've seen behind the scenes has even pushed me further away that the party has moved away from conservative principles to this cult of personality that Liz Cheney is talking about. She's absolutely correct. Um, and when you see it behind the door, when you see the data, uh, when you see the investigation, when you see those smart people and what they come up with, Jake, it's absolutely stunning uh, that cult of personality, but also the belief systems that I don't think any real conservative could follow at any point. It's absolutely insane what people have sort of put their arms around. And if you look at Stop the Steal, if you look at uh, you know some of the COVID issues with the, the vaccination conspiracy theories, when you look at all the things in total, the fact is that a lot of that has been pushed by people around the president. It's been pushed by people who support the president. And seeing this, the actual words on paper through private types of things or through public types of things is absolutely shocking, and there's no way that I can continue in that vein. All right. Former Republican and former Republican Congressman Denver Riggleman, thank you so much for being here. Good to see you. Thank you, Jake. You can watch the hearings live on CNN and get all the best reportings and analysis that begins this Thursday evening on CNN. A Republican senator being pushed by his constituents to act on guns, but is public pressure actually changing minds on Capitol Hill? You still have AR-15s, even if you stop selling them right now. No, you bad. The answer bad. is not to do nothing. Whatever we do through the Cornyn-Murphy uh, uh, cooperative effort to make schools safe and to do what you can with guns, uh, that probably would not get 60 volts. Americans are getting heated over guns, but might that translate into action in Washington? Our panel is here. Scott, let me start with you, because I'm not sure if Senator Grassley there was saying that a ban on AR-15-style weapons would not get 60 votes, or what Murphy and Cornyn are trying to do is not going to get 60 votes. Kind of unclear there. But is there is it possible something will get done here? I think it's very possible. I don't think it's likely anything happens this week. In fact, I think they'll probably need most of the June you know, work period to get that done. I also think that Senate Republicans are likely to try to go for something that could get 70, 75 votes. I don't think there's much interest, candidly, in, in getting, you know, all, all Democrats and then just the bare... Just 10, yeah. Right. And so that likely means what? That you're looking at something that's very targeted, that's very germane uh, to the tragedies that have happened, and that, candidly, would not impede or impact law-abiding citizens. And so I think there's something in there to be done. I think it's going to have to get more votes than 60. I think it's going to take more time. But I do think the political impetus is there to act. So red flag laws, Congresswoman Escobar, um, theoretically could have an effect. Although if it's only people that never broke the law before, I don't know that that's the case. Right. I mean, red flag laws are supposed to take into account a person's stability and not just their their legal record. I know that you have a list of things that you would like to have happen. Do you think it's, do you, are you willing to take what you can get at this point? Thanks, Jake. Um, yeah, I'm willing to take what I can get, but I, I can guarantee you, just based on the conversation that's happening in the Senate, it will not be enough. I, I know the focus is on schools and mental health, and that's important. But in El Paso in 2019, the massacre was at a Walmart. So are we going to harden every single public facility, or are we going to get to the underlying issue, which is guns? That is the foundation of every massacre. And when you look at what Republicans want to do, I want Americans to look at the state of Texas because it is the test case for what Republicans want, which is solving the gun uh, violence problem with more guns. And what that's done is made Texas the number one state for mass shootings. 
Um, and, and we've got to attack the gun situation and not just the school situation. Well, there's plenty of room under the Constitution, under the Second Amendment, uh, for reasonable gun regulation, including especially re- regulation of AR-15s, which are tantamount or close to M-16s uh, that, that the Supreme Court in Heller said could be banned. So, I, you know, there are so many reasonable um, alternatives between doing nothing and uh, complete completely banning all weapons that are within the constitutional realm. I don't understand. I've never understood why that stuff hasn't passed. Ashley, there's, there seems to be something of a disconnect between people saying they support stricter gun regulations, which we see this in, in poll after poll, and how they actually vote in elections. Take a look at this breakdown from the New York Times on support for background checks in various states. The expected support is always here in California, 2016, 91%. Expected support in California, but it ends up being 63%. Um, it's still passed, though, but, but if you look at Maine in 2016, 83% expected support, 48% actual support. That measure did not pass. What, what is the reason for the disconnect? Obviously, polling is not necessarily of voters. It's the public. Is it just people who feel this way don't turn out to vote? I think it's a mixture of things. You know, It makes me really sad to hear like we have to take what we can get after 19 children were murdered and 10 people in a grocery store. I was a junior in high school during Columbine. My entire adult life, people have failed us that have been elected to protect me, to to do what's best for our country. And so I think as we look towards the midterms, yes, the economy will be a big conversation, but we need to have candidates going to doors, having conversations, talking about the real social issues that are plaguing our streets. And it's not just mass shootings. It's violence in urban communities. It's, it's It's a chronic disease that... Um, is plaguing our country. And I think, I think, I do fundamentally believe this time could be different um, because of the timing of these massacres and when the midterms, if we can connect the dots for voters, I think they will actually vote for candidates who won't just take what we can get, but actually give us what we deserve. Well, look at first-term Republican Congressman Chris Jacobs from New York. After the shooting in Buffalo, he said his mind was open to some gun restrictions. And then he announced just a few days ago, he's, annou- he's, uh, he's ending his re-election bid because he got so much negative blowback from Republicans, uh, and then uh, he was going to face a, a re-election fight. Take a listen. If you stray from a party position, you are annihilated. For the Republicans, it, came, it became pretty apparent to me over the last week that that issue is gun control, any gun control. What do you think, Scott? Well, I mean, the Second Amendment is obviously, you know, one of those core sort of pillar issues for, for most conservatives and most Republicans, and their default position is to, is to defend it. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't, as George said, policy issues inside of that. And there have been some things that have happened incrementally along the way. I think, I think what Republicans are looking for here are things that are germane to what happened. But also, and I'm glad you brought this up, because there's more than just mass shootings going on. Right. I mean, 80% of murderers in this country are habitual offenders. They're out of jail you know, after six, seven arrests. And I don't hear a lot of people talking about that right now, that we have mass shootings and the school issue is front and center. Most of the murders in this country, we had, we had a big shooting in Philadelphia. We don't know what happened last night, but most of these kinds of gun crimes get lost. Well, most the of them are also not RA-15s. Most of them are handguns. But, right? But, and, Scott, you say, you know, defend the Second Amendment. What about protecting the people? What about, they're just words on paper if they don't actually protect the people who live in this country. Democracy you have to, you have to, um, voters want more than just rhetoric. And that, and I get what you're saying. Yes, handguns are a problem. And we need to, and people are talking about it. The Biden administration 
put out reforms around community violence prevention um, to make sure it's not just like putting more police on the street. It's about actually dealing with mental health, dealing with um, issues of homelessness. It's a, it's a comprehensive approach. It's not just about defending the First Amendment. It's about protecting the people that actually put you in there to serve. I just... It's so frustrating when it's just about the Second Amendment and not about the people. Yeah, absolutely. And Ashley, I, I, I want to touch on something you mentioned about the, the fact that, um, you know, it's sad that we have to take what we can get. And that's true for the moment. You know, I think it's important that we, do, that we take action. But I think to your point, and this is to a point that I've been making uh, in all of my public statements, it ultimately comes down to the American people and this November. It's not a question anymore of if this carnage will come to your community in America. It's a question of when and whether you will do your part as an American voter to support those of us who are willing to take action and hold accountable those who have not just stood in the way of sensible gun violence prevention, but those like Greg Abbott in my state who, after a horrific tragedy in El Paso, expanded access to guns and reduced our protections, not just protections for families and for children, but law enforcement. You know, one of the things that we don't talk about enough is the fact that law enforcement has been begging legislators, that was the case in Texas, to not make this wider yeah. access uh, They're, af- they're afraid of being out- outgunned. Um, we only have a couple minutes left, and I do want to turn to the January 6th hearings because that's going to be really important this week. Uh, George, uh, committee uh, member, Congressman Jamie Raskin, did a preview of the upcoming hearings. He made a case for why people should care. Take a listen. I know a lot of people would like to see Donald Trump in prison for the rest of his life. But from the standpoint of the committee, that's quite beside the point, because our goal is to strengthen and fortify the democratic constitutional order. What will the hearings need to accomplish for them to be successful? I think they just need, I don't think they need any new bombshells. I think they need to lay out the things that we have seen that have come out over the last 17 months and lay it out in an orderly and, and, and compelling fashion. I mean, the fact of the matter is, as, as Congressman uh, Riggleman pointed out in the last segment, that, that this was an attempted coup. This was an attempt to overthrow democracy. It was an attempt to stop dead in its tracks on January 6th the peaceful transition of power. And that's a coup. And that was a, and it was a multifaceted, and with all respect to, to, to Jamie Rankin, you know, it was a criminal conspiracy, a multifaceted criminal conspiracy led by the President of the United States to, to stop by whatever means necessary the, the, the proper counting of electoral votes under the, under the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act. Yeah, and that's what we're going to hear starting uh, uh, Thursday evening, uh, January 6th hearings. Be sure to tune in to CNN. We're going to be covering them live uh, every time they happen. Thanks one and all for being here. Really appreciate it. Top Gun Maverick is breaking box office records. Is it also taking a geopolitical stand? That's next. The film Top Gun Maverick surprised a lot of people in a good way when it was released in theaters this past week. In the film, Tom Cruise reprises his role as an American fighter pilot. This is your captain speaking. But what caught our attention was the patch on Maverick's bomber jacket, the red and blue Taiwanese flag. Now, a trailer for the film that came out in 2019 did not show that patch, but instead an ambiguous symbol. This was taken as a sign that 
Paramount Pictures would be yet another studio following in a grand corporate American tradition of refraining from angering the Chinese government for fear of losing access to its lucrative market. In this case, by recognizing that Taiwan and its self-governance were priority. So why did Paramount decide to bring back the Taiwanese flag, making it highly unlikely that Top Gun Maverick will be released in the huge market of China? Well, Paramount did not respond to a request for comment, but one of the film's initial big backers, Chinese company Tencent, withdrew its backing from the film in 2019, according to the Wall Street Journal, which cited unnamed sources. No reply from Tencent either. Now, it is possible that amid heightened tensions between the U.S. and China, a rah-rah movie about the American military would not be welcome in that country. China's communist leadership has become more repressive at home and more aggressive abroad, Secretary of State Antony Blinken recently said. And that's seen in its policies not just about Taiwan, but also Hong Kong, Tibet, and especially Xinjiang, where the U.S. has accused China of committing genocide against the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities, charges that Beijing, of course, denies. To say nothing of China's government's refusal to be transparent about the coronavirus pandemic that started there and has killed nearly 6.3 million people globally, according to data from Johns Hopkins, including more than 1 million in the United States. Now, if this is possibly a sign that American companies might begin taking a stand against the repressive Chinese government and its long list of troubling policies and actions, well, then we're all for it. It's more than we saw from the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights when she visited and seemed to be reading from Communist Party talking points. She said the visit was not an investigation of China, but rather an opportunity to discuss human rights. Okay. Maybe ultimately it will take a maverick to lead the way for the rest of the world, to embrace the risks, to stand up for what is right. As the country prepares to watch the January 6th hearings, tonight a deep dive into the Watergate scandal with Woodward and Bernstein, the Watergate prosecutors, and the man who turned on Nixon, White House counsel John Dean. The new CNN original series, Watergate Blueprint for a Scandal, premieres tonight at 9, only on CNN. Tonight, a new CNN original series. I have no intention of ever walking away from the job that the people elected me to do. Experience Watergate like never before. Hear what happened behind closed doors from the people who were there. The journalists. Most people didn't believe the stories we were writing. The investigators, the lawmakers, and the ultimate inside man. Many have tried to dissect the events of Watergate. I lived them. Conspiracy, extortion, blackmail. The wiretapping, it was explosive. Nixon engaged in activities that were criminal to secure his victory. And see how this pivotal moment still echoes 50 years later. When you have a president who thinks he can do anything, we are in trouble. Watergate, blueprint for a scandal. Premieres tonight at 9, only on CNN. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.